0: Welcome to Crashing the War Party. My name is Kelly Blayhos and I am joined by Daniel Harrison as we aim each week to bring you yet another reason to be outraged over the military, industrial, congressional complex, and its destructive influence on foreign policy national security, and American society. Today, we will be talking with Christopher Preble, a longtime fixture in foreign policy realism and restraint in Washington, about the shift in thinking over America's role on the global stage. But first, I'd like to bring our attention to Iraq. On Sunday, Prime Minister Khadimi survived an assassination attempt as drones laden with explosives hit his residence in Baghdad. Several in his security detail were injured, No one has yet to take responsibility for it, but fingers are pointing to so-called Iranian-backed militias, which have been responsible for similar attacks in the city, as well as recent protests over the elections. Both the U.S. and the Iranian government have condemned the attack on the prime minister, but it's safe to say that the security situation in Iraq is volatile. We also, the United States, has troops there and just over the border in Syria who have been attacked sporadically throughout the year by militias. Dan, is this a tinderbox waiting to set off? Are hawks here in the United States going to use the recent events to pressure the Biden administration to not only keep troops in the region, but to escalate against Iran?
1: Well, I think that's I mean—that's pretty much a given. Uh, when the, the attack on the base uh, in southeastern Syria happened a few weeks ago, uh, Iran hawks were already banging the drum saying, what is Biden going to do about this? Biden needs to respond. Biden needs to... to uh, take a, a firmer stance against the iranians and i think the the attack on uh, the prime minister in baghdad is interesting because it, it shows to to the extent the extent to which iranian backed militias are not necessarily always doing what the iranian government wants them to do there there tends to be an assumption that if a militia receives support from the iranian government that it therefore always acts as the iranian cat's paw
2: right uh, but
1: but i think in this case uh, so someone got out of control or one of these groups probably got out of control, which is why the IRGC uh, leader, uh, Connie, was so quick to go to Baghdad and denounce it uh, because they don't want, uh, even even if they were responsible for it, they don't want to be seen as being responsible for it. But I, but I think it's more likely that this is a case where they have all of these disparate groups that they support and some of them are uh, getting out of control and I think this is one of the long-term effects actually of the assassination of Soleimani because he maintained much tighter control over them because he had credibility with them in a way that Connie doesn't. And so he was able to, to manage them in a way where he could, he could uh, escalate or deescalate at, uh, almost at will, uh, whereas now I think they don't have quite the same uh, sort of control or same degree of control. And so uh, that that's potentially dangerous because now you have more of these armed actors, maybe acting on their own agendas uh, without uh, any any supervision. Uh, so I think it's it is a more explosive situation now uh, after this assassination attempt, and certainly uh, Iran Hawks are going to try to exploit it to to keep us mired in the situation. I think it just shows once again why we shouldn't be having any military presence in either of these countries, uh, either Syria or Iraq, uh, because for one, we don't need to have them there. And two, the longer that they're there, the more likely it is they're gonna get pulled into one of these confrontations.
0: Yeah, no, I completely agree. I also think it's a legacy of the war, our invasion of Iraq. I mean, these militias, have been operating in the country for probably as long as we've been there. And at one point in 2014, they were actually helping the United States get rid of ISIS. And so you you have this really um, strange, um, intricate, complex, relationship with uh, Iran and these militias that dates back to the beginning of the war and I agree. I mean at, at some point Iran itself, the IRGC, Tehran, the, you know the regime is it, not going to have the the control over these groups who are essentially Iraqi who have been you know um, serving the interests of Iran uh, at, at varying levels for the last 20 years. And with all of the politics going on there, I mean, I mentioned the, the elections in the intro, um, but Iran didn't do very good in the elections, meaning their uh, backed parties uh, actually lost seats. Uh, Maktad al-Sadr's uh, organization, his party actually did uh, very well. Um, and he's known as being um, you know favorable to Iran, but he's also a nationalist and he doesn't like the, the meddling. And so there is some serious tension uh, over the elections that really has not much to do with the United States. Um, but it has sort of um, ripped the veil over this idea that, you know, um, Iran Iran's interests are some sort of monolith over in, in Iraq right now. Um, these protests have, have gotten quite violent and the assassination attempt on uh, kadimi the the prime minister was it was sort of an extension of what had been going on in the country for over a week and i agree with you that i i believe that the oversimplification of this incident Uh, will just be fodder for the Hawks here in the United States uh, to not only insist that we keep our troop presence there, but uh, escalate uh, the tensions with Iran there and in other places. I mean, I don't know if we talked about this on the show last week, but the United States was flying B-52 bombers over the Middle East and the Persian Gulf and and, and some of our partners were flying in for part way to show like solidarity like uh, Israel and I believe Saudi Arabia and UAE but please don't quote me on that but several of our partners were kind of flying in to join um, just in a show of force against Iran and so uh, while that's going on then you have the the troops that are stationed uh, just over the border in Iraq and in Syria and, and, and as we talked about uh, before the show, you know, the Biden administration is planning to sell more weapons to, this, to, to, this, to Saudi Arabia and sort of this um, guise that they are uh, giving them defensive weapons. And it's really when it all comes down to it, they're giving them um, the, the tools to fight Iran, you know, and defend and send signals to, to Iran as well.
1: I, well, and one with the the latest weapons deal of course it's going to be framed as, as somehow defensive against uh drone attacks right and you know so these are these are air-to-air yeah. missiles that are supposed to uh take out drones and i mean that that i suppose that's debatable but what what this these weapons contracts and other contracts send uh the message that they send is that these uh these governments basically continue to have the full backing of the United States uh despite uh talk of recalibrating the relationship with Saudi Arabia, despite talk of turning them into pariah during the campaign, uh, there, it's really been business as usual under the Biden administration. And uh, it, it's been, and the remarkable thing is that they haven't even had to do very much to get back in the good graces of Washington. They just had to wait uh, and, and just wait for, I don't know, uh, the U.S. To, to fall back into its old patterns of yeah. indulging and arming these governments. Uh, so you have uh, basically impunity for the Saudis for all the crimes that they've committed with U.S.-made weapons, and the message that they're getting from the Biden administration is uh, you know, basically we're we're back open for business again, uh, and uh, there's no there are no consequences for anything that you've done before now, and so it's that, that's been very disappointing to see from the Biden administration, uh, and I, I think it it is going to contribute longer term to. Tensions in the region uh, that will end up being bad for everybody.
0: Right. And you know we you know we've discussed this before. there's this 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 big debate of over offensive and and defensive um, arming of Saudi Arabia. And just to remind our listeners, uh, you know President Biden when giving his, I believe, his first foreign policy speech said that we will no longer be helping or assisting Saudi Arabia in its war in Yemen and that we would no longer um, support them with offensive weaponry or the tools to engage in that war. And we've all sort of been sitting on pins and needles, waiting, you know, to see. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that they're not going to send them all these weapons that the, the, the Trump administration had promised? Are they going to sell them any other weapons? So this week they come out and say that they're 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 going to be sending sell, selling them weapons, but they are, like you said, missile defense um, uh, weaponry, uh, kind of keeping in that sort of frame of being defensive. But I mean, let's face it, it's still a signal to Tehran that we're keeping our finger on uh, the scale for the Saudis and the rest of the Gulf states against Iran. And I agree with you completely. It just it, it further enmeshes us in uh, the security situation there. And um, I think you know, it, it's not helpful, but it, it does. It also doesn't really signal a real end to the the Yemen war. I know you've been writing about this right. endlessly for the last several years. I mean, it, I mean, when are we going to get an end to the boycott? When are we going to actually get some uh, some some firm um, talk or firm action from the Biden administration to stop the Saudis um, and stop the actual fighting on the ground there? This doesn't seem to help.
1: No, I, I don't think it does, and I mean. Unfortunately, the the problem is that the, the Saudis have done so badly in the war that they're losing on the ground. Their their proxies are losing on the ground. The Houthis continue to advance in the north uh, and and uh, make additional gains around Ma'rib, and so there is a there's a, uh, there's, a th- there's this idea in Washington. I think that as the Houthis are advancing, you can't then pull the plug on your support for the Saudis. Because then that will be viewed as some kind of betrayal, or, or you'll you'll be helping the Houthis. Uh, well, the Houthis are already winning anyway. I mean, so why, why are we keeping up the, the facade that there's any point in supporting the coalition any further? Uh, we, we backed an aggressive military intervention. It failed, as people said it would when it started. Uh, many people did. Uh, and... The, the people of Yemen have been made to suffer now for six and a half years since the start of that intervention, and even longer if you go back to the the original Houthi takeover. And so, no, we, we haven't seen any kind of pressure being brought to bear on the Saudis, uh, and and that's one of Biden's big failures, uh, because he I think he could do that. We have the leverage to use in terms of the, the support that we provide to the Saudi military. They, they could not really operate without the the logistical and technical support that we provide them, and Bruce Riedel has talked about this many times. He said we could ground the Saudi Air Force tomorrow if we had the will to do it.
0: Yeah,
1: and the problem is that there's simply not the will.
0: What's unfortunate too is that, and, I, and believe me, this isn't coming from me, but one of the things uh, that I had read in the wake of um, you know the Kadimi assassination attempt and, and the broader issues uh, with U.S. And, and Iran and this arms. Sale was that we always seem to offer the Saudis or UAE uh, or Israel arms deals or some other sweetener just at the moment that we are reengaging with Iran on their nuclear deal on the JCPOA. So I'm wondering uh, what you think. I mean, is but the timing of this announcement uh, for the for the weapons sales? Um, I know that we've been reading lately that um, that the U.S. is ready to get back into these talks in Vienna, and so is uh, Tehran. Do you think it's just a this, this standard um, role playing that's going on, where we have to reassure our partners? No, we're really we're, we we are really not going to get in bed with the Iranians. So here's some weapons, and here's some things to keep you happy while we get into this deal.
1: Uh, well, I think there there could be something to that because the The regional clients always uh, play this game of of getting very skittish and and you know worrying publicly about being abandoned uh, you know but, but they know that this is just we should know that this is a ploy that they use to get more favors uh, because f- for whatever reason, our leaders are overly solicitous of their uh, needs for more support. And so they they know they they've seen how this has worked over the years. They know how they can sort of play Washington to to get more from the U.S. Uh, than they actually need. And so I yeah, I think with this taking place alongside the the stalled negotiations uh, with the Iranians, I, I think there is uh, something of that going on. Um, the the negotiations themselves, of course, have been stalled ever since the presidential election in Iran, uh, and and it doesn't. It really doesn't look very promising at this point because the Iranians have felt the need to take uh, ever more maximalist stands of their own uh, to sort of prove to their own people uh, that they're not going to get rolled this time uh, in the way that they think that the previous government was. And so they're becoming much more intransigent at the moment when we really need them to be flexible. Uh, But of course, our side has not shown much flexibility either because there have been no offers of sanctions relief uh, to speak of. Uh, for the whole year. And so we're, we're looking at this impasse where all parties in theory want the deal to survive, but no one's actually prepared to do what it takes to keep it alive. Uh, and of course the, the Iran hawks are, are laughing all the way to, the, to their next war, because they're now building the case uh, for threatening military action, and eventually they'll be building the case for taking military action, even though, as we've discussed before, this would be uh, criminal aggression and, and has no basis in anything uh, because it's not, it's not our right to launch attacks against other countries because their nuclear program is a slightly more advanced than it used to be. And so it's, it's a very frustrating thing to watch because it, it should have been fairly easy to revive this agreement uh, earlier in the year and at every opportunity to do that, uh, somebody's dropped the ball And and in many cases, that's been the U.S. side. Our guest today is Chris Preble. He is co-director of the New American Engagement Initiative in the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. He is the author of four books, including Peace, War, and Liberty, Understanding U.S. Foreign Policy as well as The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and Less Free. He co-authored with John Glazer and Trevor Thrall, Fuel to the Fire, How Trump Made America's Broken Foreign Policy Even Worse, and How We Can Recover. Uh, he is a co-host of the Net Assessment podcast in the War on the Rocks Network, and most recently he wrote a new paper questioning the assumption that U.S. leadership is indispensable to the health of the global order. Welcome to the show, Chris.
2: Hey, thanks, Dan. It's great to be here.
1: Uh, we appreciate it. And I, I really enjoyed the paper. Uh, it was, uh, really, I was I, really, I found it very compelling. Uh, you. You, uh, you detail how U.S. indispensability in the international system has been greatly exaggerated and what the U.S. can do, start doing differently to adapt to new realities. Uh, the indispensability of U.S. leadership has been used as something of a bludgeon to reject the U.S. doing less in the world on the grounds that the U.S. is fated to have this role and I think you show pretty convincingly that we don't have to bear this burden al- alone or by ourselves. Right. Tell us a bit more about your findings.
2: Sure. So so this is something of a labor of love. It's something that I've I've touched on at various stages in my work, but I decided to sort of really drill down on this one core question. And it's really it's, it's very emblematic of the kind of work that NAEI tries to do in terms of testing foundational assumptions. And so. You know, I think I have to say at the outset. Look, I'm I'm an American, and I and I don't think it's chauvinistic to say that the United States absolutely did play a critical role in establishing uh, institutions and certain norms, especially coming out of World War II. And I might even say that the United States was indispensable for a period of time. Uh, you know, especially in the first few years after the end of the Second World War, when. When the world was just so completely and utterly devastated um, by by the war and by the sort of political um, you know overhang of the, of that experience, especially in Europe and to and, and also in Asia as well, um, and so I think it's understandable why Americans believe themselves to be indispensable because it's it, it's not it's not part of human nature in general to sort of Take stock of the fact that the world is changing around you. Those changes are tend tend to be quite gradual, um, and and you know there you know American exceptionalism is a thing, and people you know we've documented it where Americans tend to to see their country as having sort of exceptional traits, and I think that was informed, frankly, by the experience of World War II and the and the aftermath of World War II. So so I you know I I, I didn't want to question whether or not the United States had been indispensable, was indispensable. That's that's really not in dispute. The issue is that, um, that by sort of overdoing it, by sort of believing that the United States uh, is and always will be indispensable, the United States U.S. policymakers simultaneously um, discouraged others from taking a larger role in their respective regions or globally, sometimes explicitly so. Um, and they also were quite uh, dismissive of it, or ignored it when it happened, and sort of just looked past it, or or pretended that it didn't occur, um, because that didn't fit with the narrative of indispensability. And so, and I think that the experience of the Trump years um, should have been a real wake up call, and I think it was a real wake up call that. That, that, in fact, you, you can sort of tell a very sad story or a very sort of pessimistic story, which is, you know, this was the end of the end of the world the U.S. made or whatever. But that's not the conclusion I come to in the paper. I said, no, as a matter of fact, um, that the re- the experience of the Trump years demonstrates the resiliency and adaptability of the system that the United States helped to build. Um, and that's a good news story. And that we should take stock of the fact that other countries have played a very constructive role um, because, they have come around to the view uh, that the benefits of peace and trade and, pro- and, and, and you know, sort of respect for certain norms um, are worth upholding, even when Uncle Sam isn't there uh, standing over them with a stick to whack them on the, on the knuckles or, you know. Uh, um, and, and I think that's the part that to me is, is genuinely encouraging, is that you know, the United States could look upon this fact and, and take pride in it to a certain extent um, because it was not always that way. There, the, some of these norms were were not widely accepted um, and the United States, I think, helped to, to push them along at a critical moment, but that is no longer the case.
1: Right, and, when, and you talk about the, the resilience of, of global order uh, even when the, the US isn't uh, maybe doing uh, the best job of, of helping it um, and that, that Brings up the, the question of how essential US hegemony is to the maintenance of that order, and that right. this is one of the assumptions that you talk about in the paper. Yes, yes. Um, that, that the US hegemony, uh, in the view of the hegemonists, <laughs> is responsible for the absence of great power conflict since World War II. Yes. Uh, but as you note in the paper, there could be several other explanations for that. Correct. Uh, so could, could you uh, talk about some of those?
2: Absolutely. So I think that at a minimum, the claim that US military power, hegemony, dominance, uh-huh. Um, is is to it is is the cause of peace and prosperity and liberalism the small l since the end of the second world at a minimum that is overdetermined. okay it is it is and again i'm using a political science term even though i tend not to want it. it's like clearly there were other factors at play and and We will never definitively disentangle which of those factors were most important. We can concede that all of those factors were important to a degree, but the real error is in claiming that U.S. dominance is the explanatory variable and all the rest fall to the wayside. So some of those explanatory variables have to do with... Frankly, the experience of especially Europe and to a lesser extent Asia from the first and second world wars is the realization that war is extraordinarily costly, and um, and unlikely to deliver benefits um, to uh, to to the aggressor, and that sort of understanding or appreciation for. Um, uh, for finding other avenues for advancing one's interests short of war likely would have occurred even were it not for the United States and, and uh, in particular sort of preaching the benefits of, of, of war and peace. Another factor related to that is nuclear weapons, right? Nuclear weapons also coincide with U.S. military dominance. Um, uh, you have to account for the fact that for a small number of countries, but but very important countries, the presence of nuclear weapons raises the costs of conflict such that so far, and I'm knocking on wood right now, such that so far, none have attempted uh, to un- upset the balance and especially not in a way that would um, directly engage uh, other nuclear armed states. And, I, you know, there's a footnote that you have to sort of hand wave uh, India, Pakistan, sort of an asterisk and, you know, Israel has nuclear weapons. They've been attacked since they've had nuclear weapons. So you have to sort of Caveat that to a bit, but I think you have to factor in, in nuclear weapons as one of the explanatory variables for why for the for great power peace since the Second World War, and another. And again, this is highly contested, but it's one that I believe in quite strongly, is trade. Uh, I think that trade uh, was a cause of conflict for most of human history. I think it is less of a cause of conflict since the Second World War, and partly that is explained by the liberalization, um, broad liberalization, the understanding that the benefits of reducing artificial barriers to trade um, are not merely uh, good for prosperity and for efficiency, economic efficiency, but are also conducive to peace. Um, and so I think that's also a factor which we have to account for. And again, we have, we have to remember, this was not always the case in the United States. First of all, the United States was very much a protectionist nation for a good part of its first 150 or so years of its existence. But then coming out of the Second World War, the United States really sort of flipped the script and said, "Well, no. As a matter of fact, we, we see the benefits of this, and we can make make this work." And they very uh, uh, explicitly broke down the sort of closed trading blocks that characterized the the, the pre World War II era. Uh, again, uh, again, you know, in the face of much resistance initially, but eventually, the the, the former colonial powers that had created these closed trading systems came around to the view that in fact, we would not want to recreate them, even if we could, even if the United States would let us, we would not want to actually cre- recreate that sort of mercantilist closed system. And I think that's, again, has to be factored into the explanation for for the great power of peace since the Second World War.
0: Thank you, Chris, and thanks for coming on. Yeah. Um, On that trade note, I mean, I I totally understand what you're saying, uh, but what I've been seeing and as we all have in the last several years through the Trump administration is that the trading, the trade issue has actually caused much of the friction that we're seeing on the foreign policy front, specifically, you know, these wide open uh, trade uh, deals uh, that, that had been put into place since the 1990s with China bringing China into the WTO. And then the realization that China might not have been playing by the rules the whole time. And now we, we wake up and realize that, you know, or we feel that our supply chains are being held hostage. And, and that seems to be at the nub of a lot of the, competi- the, the actual competition. So, how do we square that? How do we convince? people that the trade needs to stay open. And those, those um, that decoupling, which seems to be uh, one of the, you know, resolutions that people are calling for right now is not the way to go. If we, if we want to, 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 to go this way that you are advocating,
2: um, Sure. So I don't get in. I don't get into this much in this particular paper, but I've written about it elsewhere and have followed the work of, of Pat, you know, former colleagues, including back when I was at Cato. And I think that first of all, when the United States was brought, when excuse me, when China was brought into the WTO, it was with an asterisk. We recognized that China was a different sort of country when it was admitted to the WTO, and that it was a you know it was not a market-based economy, and it had it was a developing economy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that um, bringing it into this system and, and uh, China agreeing to abide by the rules of uh, an organization like the WTO would ultimately be to the benefit, not just to the Chinese, but also to the rest of the world. Now, this is a contested point, but the evidence suggests that China is at least as likely to abide by WTO rulings as the United States is or other major trading partners. So it's not true that they just re- rejected out of hand the sort of oversight that the WTO provides. They still see some benefit of of compliance, and therefore they are they will comply when they see it in their interest. So this is what it comes back to: is is can China and can other members of the global trading system, which is to say virtually everyone, does the does that trading the, the, the participants in this trading system appreciate the benefits of it over the alternatives? And the alternatives, as I see it, is a more closed, managed, autarkic. Uh, system like we used to have, you know, in in days past, um, and I think it would be dangerous and unproductive. That is to say, less efficient and less beneficial um, for us to move backwards. Um, obviously, President Trump disagreed. Folks like uh, Robert Light, uh, Lightheiser and 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 others, folks like that, you know, um, Steve Bannon, folks like that, had a very different view. Um, and I think that the reason why their message. Um, uh, resonated is out of a basic sense of fairness, right? Is, is if you believe um, that that trade is conducted in a fair and even-handed way, and that if I have a product and I'm trying to sell this product to a willing buyer, that I have at least as fair a shot of actually making the sale as the as the guy down the street or the guy around the, around the world. That is really critical to trust in the global trading system. And I think that the breakdown in the sense of fairness and that people were dealing unfairly really needs to be tackled head on. But here again, we need to be honest when it's not just the the Chinese that are dealing unfairly, but others are dealing unfairly as well. And there is real benefit in sort of injecting more trust into the system. And so that would, would be one thing I would say. The other thing real quick is that the evidence suggests that uh, that trade as a concept is more popular than the politicians seem to think it is, both on the right and the left, both Republicans and Democrats. And I think that it would be it would behoove us to pay closer attention to those polls showing greater support for, for, for trade. because what happens is if we don't pay close attention, those who are most vocal about it, Get the most attention, even though they may not be representing um, uh, a, a clear majority of, of folks. And so, so it's both a combination of sort of reaffirming fairness as a core principle to trade, um, but also paying attention to actual public opinion as opposed to the public opinion that as we imagine it to be. Because I think there's a real gap there that that we need to we need to reconcile with yeah. and, uh, and, and close. Um,
0: I read your paper and I really appreciate it. And I did want to kind of tease out uh, one of the things that, you know, um, that we often talk about, you know, at Quincy and and these discussions about um, our partners, alliances, um, giving them the more, you know, of the responsibility to lead the international Mm -hmm. world order. So what do you say um, when there are countries, partners, uh, alliance, allies who continue to pressure the United States to maintain its leadership role? You -hmm. know, I'm talking about like countries like Poland and Mm -hmm. uh, Lithuania. Mm -hmm. Lithuania had, you know, just I think it was like a month ago. Had opened up a new base for the for uh, our troops, and basically said, "Come and stay." And you know, Poland has been trying to get us to build a base there. You know, you see in the Middle East, they're not—they're very reticent to um, end the security uh, architecture that we have led there. Um, you also see it in Taiwan. You know, with the mixed messages coming out of there. So, how do we reduce the incentives for them to keep? You know, to, to to keep pressuring us right.
2: to stay. I think that the short answer, Kelly, is that they need to have plausible alternatives to US military power and military dominance. Um, I think in some cases they don't see those realistic alternatives or they can't imagine what those alternatives might be. But in other instances, even in the even under the the umbrella of US dominance, we still see some moves towards alternative approaches. So for example, you know, there there is some there are some optimistic signs that the Saudis and the Iranians are are tiring of their their war, especially in Yemen. Okay, again, we could sort of narrow this down to a and and the Emiratis are involved in this as well. Say, gee, maybe the war in Yemen isn't actually in our best interest. And the United States has probably been telling them that, but now it's actually starting to happen, right? For whatever reason, you you have to explain these alternate approaches. And one of those alternate approaches might be seeking a negotiated settlement as opposed to a holding to a maximalist set of demands, believing that the United States will back them up on their maximalist demands, when in fact, um, some sort of compromise might make more sense for all parties. Now, This is usually portrayed in a very negative way as though the only alternative that our allies and partners have to continued reliance on the United States is capitulation. Right. If that were true, then I wouldn't be making the case for for the United States to recognize that it is one of uh, one of many capable actors. But what I see instead is that and what I believe to be true is that countries actually can define their interests fairly well. And generally speaking, they can be trusted to make good decisions. Um, If you argue against that, you are essentially saying that the only country in the world that has the wisdom to, to do all these things is the United States of America, which is absurd. I mean, and again, I'm I'm an American, I love my country, but you know, this would be an extraordinarily fragile system if it truly depended upon the United States of America and the only alternative to the United States of America pulling the strings and calling the shots was either total bloody chaos or domination by the Chinese uh, Communist Party and, and, and the People's Republic of China. I don't believe that those are the only two alternatives on offer. I believe that another alternative is clearly empowered capable actors that are that are more motivated and empowered but to those countries back to your original question to those countries who do not see that plausible alternative we need to help them see it we cannot keep telling them yes you're absolutely right there is no alternative to us and therefore keep asking for for us to, and, and again help them see plausible alternatives, help them get there because that will be not merely, that will not be mostly to our benefit even, it will be to their benefit. And, and again, would build a much more resilient and adaptable system that was not so uh, extraordinarily dependent upon the United States.
1: Absolutely, I, I think that's, that's just right. And uh, you, you make a number of recommendations in the paper uh, that, that try to get the US and our allies into that better position. Yeah, and and one of the recommendations that you make, uh, you you call on policymakers to, a uh, list of things, uh, prioritize, act with humility, take account of other states' legitimate interests, and be prepared to compromise. Right. Um, and and those are all good recommendations. Uh, I think it's those last two points that will be hardest to put into practice, right? Because those are the things that our policymakers have been almost trained not to do uh, for such a long time. True. Um, uh, I mean, it seems like maybe generations of policymakers have little experience with that kind of behavior. Um, how quickly do you think the U.S. can change from its old patterns of behavior since since it's been so ingrained for so long to sort of lord it over other states?
2: Well, actually, Dan, you just hinted at it. This is a generational play. And, and again, it is it is completely understandable why the generation of Americans who came of adulthood... Um, during or in the immediate aftermath of World War II believe the United States to be indispensable and believe that the United States is sort of the motive force of all the good things that happen in the world. Um, but so, again, I totally understand where that comes from. And, and it's, you know, you, you they are right, right? That that was that was clearly true. But there is a generational shift ongoing that my colleague, among other Trevor Thrall, has documented in some detail, um, where where the next age cohort and the age cohort after that. And now, you know, now the Gen, the Gen Z folks, Gen Y and Gen Z um, are, are much more humble, right? They, they, they had, they aspire to great things, but they do not believe that the United States of America has to be the engine for all of those great things. They, they have that certain uh, sense of the limits of American power but also, they do—they do have great aspirations for what the United States can do to emulate good behavior and to model, you know, to model good behavior. Excuse me, so that others will emulate our good behavior. So I think they see a different approach that is grounded in humility um, and and not so much in the sense of of, of American exceptionalism as a as a God-given right um, um, that America, the American exceptionalism that we witnessed, that the world witnessed. In the 40s and 50s was a, a came from a unique set of historical circumstances, which we will not be able to recover. And and I think that's that's ultimately to to the good because I think it is it, it is a more resilient and adaptable system um, than the alternative.
1: Definitely, and I, I think that's a great place to leave it. And uh, with a. A hopeful note for a change uh, for our audience. uh, (laughs) Looking uh, towards a brighter future, we may hope. Uh, So, uh, very good. Uh, Thanks so much, Chris, for coming on. We appreciate having you on here and uh, we look forward to having you on again.
2: Excellent. Great to be on the show. Thanks to you both.
0: Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world one episode at a time.